for the reading of the scripture, which is taken from 2 Corinthians 11, verses 16 through 33. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me, just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not taking, talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my fellow Jews, in dangers from Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concerns for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under King Aretas, had the city of Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. The word of God. Often what happens in sermon preparation to give you a little inside knowledge is that you prepare, you spend time in the passage, and then right as you're about to get up, new thoughts emerge, things that God says, yeah, you might want to add this. The part today was remembering a seminary professor of mine. He's a famous evangelist named Isaac Canales, a Hispanic church leader and largely within the Pentecostal church. And he happened to teach my class on Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians in seminary. What I remembered as, I was, as Karen was reading this passage was how crazy Isaac thought Paul was. He often, Isaac, would teach his class with a bag of Fritos in one hand and a Pepsi in the other and would be munching on his Fritos and taking sips from his Pepsi as he talked about how loco he believed Paul was. Often it started with amigos. Paul is loco. 
es muy loco. He was crazy, but crazy for Jesus. Paul was willing to suffer with and for the church at Corinth so that they might see Jesus through him. And in an amazing way, he was willing to sacrifice himself and and suffer with and for them if only they would be able to see Jesus through him. One of the crazy things you know about me is that I am a distance runner. While we were away in Rogue River this last week, Josh and I put in about 20 miles together. What kind of vacation is that? Not really, but for us, it's actually fun. You're sweating, but you're also you know, working these bodies God has given you and, and using them to his glory and to his honor. And often that experience of sort of suffering together through running often is a joining point between me and my son. I remember actually about two years ago, I took Josh out to his first day of cross-country practice. They start in June when the season doesn't really start till August or September. And I remember connecting with his coach briefly. We were in the back of the pack. There's about 30 or 40 high school students running ahead of us because now almost at 50, there's no way I'm keeping up with high school cross-country runners. And pretty quickly, Josh's coach, Kevin, turned and looked at me. He said, I know you. I said, what do you mean? He says, we, we ran a Chico State together. You were on, we were on the team together. And I said, you're Kevin Selby? Yeah, I'm Kevin Selby. I've been coaching the cross-country team for three or four years. You're, you're Mike Griffin. He said, I remember running with you. I remember sweating with you in 100-degree days in August in Chico when you're preparing for the season. You see that common shared experience of running together, of sort of the sweat and the toil of working your body as a high school or college cross-country level runner had joined us together, and within a moment there was a point of remembrance and connection. So Paul illustrates the connectedness he has with the church at Corinth out of his sense of toil and investment in them. And what this illustrates for us is an inverse spiritual principle. You see, you might think that our connectedness and our, our growth comes when times are easy, when, when things are kind of, uh, you know, status quo as a church, you know, when uh, things, are, you know, aren't too challenging or too difficult. But a church alive actually connects better when things are not necessarily easy, but in fact they're difficult. But you connect through shared suffering with and for one another at a deeper level. Remember or just think about those people that you would call closest in connection with you over the course of your life. Was the closest of connection built through times of ease? Or was it built actually through times of suffering together? Standing alongside one another like a a soldier might. uh, In arms with one another for a cause that you believe in. Paul was willing to suffer with and for the church at Corinth because he so believed in the cause of Jesus Christ. And what he illustrates for us is this. Every believer in Christ should be willing to suffer with and for one another because of Christ's willingness to suffer with and for us. Right at the start of the chapter, Paul asks the Corinthians to endure, the Greek word anasheste, with him a little bit of foolishness. Paul basically is saying, I am crazy and I'm about to share with you how that craziness or that foolishness is being used for God's purposes. 
In fact, he, used, he repeats the word foolish twice in the same sentence to illustrate this in verse 1. And in fact, let me pause and say, if you want to open up your Bibles to page 1804, you're going to find the full text of this passage, and that would be helpful today because I'm going to talk through parts of the chapter previous to the part that Karen read. As we get into this, we see Paul willing to talk about the challenges that he had faced because God had been so generous in suffering with and for him and the Corinthians through Jesus. A few weeks ago, we looked at how Jesus, though rich in heaven, rich in his identity as the Son of God, rich in relationship with the loving Father, was willing to become poor for us by taking on flesh and, and humanity for us and for ultimately our salvation when he sacrificed himself. We also saw that the initial response to that great gift of salvation offered us in Jesus was meant to be a a generosity of giving of ourselves in sacrifice and in service. But now Paul shows us that that should also lead us to being willing to suffer for Christ and for the sake of others if it will help others see Jesus through us. And Paul actually uses a method here. He, he basically says, I don't want to go there, but I have to go there to help you see Jesus. And that is, he takes on the method of his opponents and goes into a time of boasting. But the difference is, Paul's not ultimately boasting about himself. He's boasting about what God has done through him. And his purpose in boasting was that he had a divine jealousy for the Corinthians. He had invested in them, and he was jealous for them to pay attention to God and to give themselves fully and completely to Jesus. He was also aware of their willingness to put up with rivals who had presented an adulterated message, a different Jesus, a different gospel. And Paul was gravely concerned that that was going to lead them to a different kind of suffering, an actual eternal suffering apart from God if they did not receive the true gospel of Jesus. Paul also is invested in them and, and, and sees himself as, as not inferior to the super apostles. In other words, his ministry had become authenticated by his own interaction with Jesus and his own transformation that had occurred as a result. So what Paul is saying here is that because of Christ's suffering for us, he was willing to be foolish. And in fact, to, to be, have his motives questioned and his ministry questioned, if only that would help people see Jesus through him. He was jealous for them with a godly jealousy. He wanted them to be in, a, in an intimate and full communion and relationship with Jesus. And he had promised them and committed them ultimately to one husband, to Christ himself. Paul's willingness to take on criticism as a mindless person, as a fool, was all for the sake of others seeing Jesus. It wasn't that this wasn't hurtful to him. He, He was hurt by it. He presents an ironic quote. He says, you gladly put up with fools, basically identifying the fact that his opponents had had called him, referred to him as a fool. But foolish though he may be, Paul will do whatever is necessary for the church to be caught up in, in the embrace of God. He writes then here out of a deep irony. 
He doesn't want the Corinthians to accept him as a fool, but as an apostle fully sent by Jesus. But if playing a fool will bring them more quickly to the conclusion that Christ is real and had really sent Paul, he was willing to play the fool. Behind this is a whole theology that he has. Paul has already told us in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Let me remind you, both remind myself and remind you, God did not choose you in a relationship with you, and God did not choose you to be an instrument of service for him because you have it all together. In fact, he chose you in the midst of your weakness. And often it's those points when I feel weakest in ministry and in service as a pastor that God works most powerfully. I watch God show up in powerful ways and reveal himself in those times when people feel weak and vulnerable, but it's then that God undergirds them with strength. God chose me, chose you as a foolish person to be able to point people to him. He also tells us in 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ. In other words, we're meant to do whatever is necessary to help people see Jesus. And that might be through pointing out our weaknesses and being honest about those and being willing to suffer with and for people in the midst of weakness rather than just being in places of strength. Because it's in places of weakness and personal suffering that we know how dependent we are on God, where we stop fooling ourselves that we can do things in our own strength or ability. I was reminded once again over a seven-day vacation that as a parent, as a dad, I do not have the strength and ability in myself to love my kids consistently, particularly when they complain about boredom on a vacation that I am trying to thoroughly enjoy. I'm in, I'm in heaven at this retreat center, 100 acres. Beth and I are taking slow walks through the wilderness, hand in hand, having beautiful conversations. And by the time I get back, it's, Dad, he hit me. Dad, he shot me with a Nerf bullet. You don't, you don't know how much I've suffered since you've been away. As a parent, as a dad, I regularly have to recognize my own foolishness, my own inability to raise these boys up to follow him in my own strength or ability. I am utterly dependent on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to remind the Corinthians that it is in places of weakness that God got a hold of him, that he even opposed the movement of Jesus until Jesus revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. But because he had, Paul was like a super apostle. He had seen and experienced the resurrected Jesus, and he now had a story to tell. And Paul was willing to be foolish if only that story would be told. And if only that would help the Corinthians anchor themselves in their relationship with Jesus. And Paul goes on to say beyond his own willingness to be foolish or boast or be jealous for them to be joined to Jesus, he actually had invested in them in such a way as he was like a matchmaker, bringing them, depicted as the bride of Christ, together with Jesus, the husband. You see, even in the Old Testament, which Paul builds upon, God is seen as the husband of the people of God. 
And the church, the people of God, Israel in the Old Testament, and then the, the church, the ecclesia and the new, is seen as the bride of Christ, meant to be made pure and holy, to be joined with Jesus. Jeff, if you could put the picture up of the, the wedding bands. There's an image here, and it made me think of this uh, as a result of a wedding I did about eight, week, about eight days ago, just before I went on vacation, and is illustrated in the passage. Paul is pointing to the fact that God the Father was Israel's husband, depicted in places like Isaiah 54, 5. And in places like Hosea, we can see that the people of God had consistently been unfaithful to God. But God, as a loving and true husband, had covenantally committed himself to to a hesed, to a a loving commitment to his people. He would not let them go. And as a result of that, Paul was jealous for the attention of the Corinthians to be directed toward Jesus. Not to him, but to Jesus through him. Paul depicts Jesus then as the bride or excuse me, as the bridegroom and the church of Jesus, as the bride of Christ, adorned and, and made holy and pure, set apart for Jesus. Paul's talking about this and depicting it like being a matchmaker that has drawn the church in Corinth to Jesus. And his cause of investment then was that their relationship be successful and fruitful that the Corinthians grow in a deeper and more complete love of Jesus, that they as the bride of Christ, the church, can anticipate that the husband Jesus was coming and that they would prepare themselves and get themselves ready to be joined to Jesus. I remember on our wedding day, Beth, like most, most brides, spent hours preparing herself, getting herself ready, having a beautiful wedding dress, having you know, beautiful makeup that just augmented her natural beauty that I'm still captivated by. She was so dressed up and ready to go that then they didn't exactly know how to get her to the church without sort of spoiling all that. One, girl, one uh, friend of ours came up with an idea, and she said, wait a minute. And she left the house where Beth was being prepared, went next door where they had an RV, and they asked the people if they could borrow the RV to take Beth to the church. So Beth actually went to West Valley Presbyterian Church in Cupertino on our wedding day, holding two different things in the middle of an RV so that she didn't wrinkle her dress or spoil her makeup. She made it to the church on time and safely. And when I saw her at the back of the sanctuary, I just cried. Why would she choose me? A schmuck. A fool. For Jesus, but also naturally, humanly, a fool. And yet she did. And what that shows us, and what Paul's trying to depict is, that commitment... That joining together of marriage, a covenantal commitment between two people, is meant to illustrate the relationship we have with God. Committed in such a way that we're responding to the covenantal love with Jesus with an unabashed, all sold out commitment back and return to him. And Paul is jealous that they give Jesus that kind of attention. And so Paul was willing to risk himself by being a matchmaker, by 
inviting the, relation, the church at Corinth, those people, to be joined in a relationship with Jesus. And he was so committed to that process of their joining together in commitment that, that he loved them and he wrote to them and he suffered for them when they were going astray from that relationship. And he so wanted to see them return to a, a pure, holy union with Jesus that he was willing to, to put his life on the line for their sake. And to to solidify that commitment and to suffer with and for the church at Corinth. Because he knew that that suffering that he was committed to was going to help the church at Corinth see the validity of Jesus. That it wasn't just Paul acting like everything was great, that that all things were well, that was going to help them know more about Jesus. No, he knew that his willingness to show them what a sacrificial love and commitment looked like through his own life would help them better see Jesus. Beth and I played matchmakers once. There was a youth volunteer form that served alongside me in youth ministries in my first call as a pastor in San Diego. And I just had this inkling And Beth had this inkling that she would enjoy meeting James, a friend of mine from seminary. And so at a Jars of Clay concert back somewhere about 1999, maybe 2000, we took a risk and we played matchmaker. And we invited James and we invited Megan to come to a Jars of Clay concert with us. And guess what? It worked. By the end of that night, it was like Beth and I walked away and we just watched them join together and be all in on one another, all about each other, into one another, and we just backed off. This last fall, they live outside of Boston, so I don't see them very often, but this last fall when I was on that trip with Josh to see Washington, D.C. and Boston, I got to see James and Megan. And now, 22, uh, 20 years later into their marriage... They talked about challenges they had experienced, hopes that hadn't been fulfilled over the course of their marriage, and that things had been hard at times. But they also talked about how their love and their commitment with one another had stood the test of time. And they talked about their commitment to their church, which wasn't perfect, small Episcopalian church, but they had decided that the church they had joined was a church they were covenantally committed to, and they were sticking it out. And I was refreshed and encouraged by James and Megan and their commitment to one another. And I said, I'm never going to try to commit, uh, never try to play matchmaker again, because right now I'm batting a thousand. That's what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to join the Corinthians with Jesus. He wanted to see them experience a covenantal commitment within marriage. And he wanted them to experience the, the fruit of a membership commitment of joining together. Tom Rainier in his book, I Am a Church Member, talks about that, you know, when we make that commitment to one another, we want to be a functional church member. That means we we give and we serve and, and, and we minister to one another in times of suffering and difficulty. We seek to build one another up, even when it's hard. He talks about how we want to be unifying church members, to, to not you know, be a point of division or, or dissension, but to, but to be encouraging and unifying to the church around us. 
To not let our church be about our own personal preferences, but to actually give as part of a greater whole and recognize that, you know, if we've got 70, maybe 75 people in the room, we all come with our own personal preferences for worship and other aspects of church life. And those things could conflict with one another. But we gather and we actually sacrifice some of our own preferences for the greater whole of gathering and worship together. And the fact that we get to encourage one another in places like this. Rainier talks about the importance of praying for your church leaders. It talks about leading your own family to be healthy church members. And ultimately treasure the value of that connection and that covenant commitment. Even when it means suffering with and for one another. Because that's often where where some of the greatest gifts are. We experience the blessing of being with one another in hardship. And we find ourselves growing and maturing as a result. Every now and then I still have those times where, you know, I'm going to visit somebody in a hospital and I'm in the elevator and I'm thinking, who am I for this person to invite me into their hospital room? To be willing to open their door and and allow me in at a point of vulnerability. And yet when I'm with people in those sacred moments, and they are truly sacred moments, I see Jesus show up in those times. And there's a sense of bond and experience. And often, I'm blessed by those people and their faith in God in those trying times more than I bless them. Paul doesn't want the church at Corinth to miss out on any of this. And yet he realizes that in the midst of his jealousy for them, his commitment to them, and his call to them to commit themselves to Jesus like a marriage would be, that they had taken a detour. And as Eve was deceived, he says that their minds may somehow be led astray from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ, that they had put up with people preaching a different Jesus even, and a different spirit and a different good news. Some of this is probably people that were teaching a law-based attempt at relationship to Jesus, some Judaizers that, that thought that the way of the law was still the pathway to Jesus when Paul had clearly depicted otherwise. These people in the church at Corinth had questioned Paul's integrity and sincerity, and it had hurt him. And he recognized that there were false apostles who were masquerading as apostles of Christ. They were saying they were sent by Jesus, but they were presenting a different Jesus and were inspired by a different spirit. And so Paul is letting them know that 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 wasn't true and that Paul wants to warn them even that Satan himself was masquerading as an angel of light that Satan was behind some of these false betrayals and that, and that the church at Corinth needed to wake up and realize that there was a, a false gospel being taught. And sadly, I think we too also are in that place where we, like Eve, can be led astray. We can see what looks like good fruit, but we know even the good can often be the enemy of the best, right? Right? And that sometimes things that initially look good and attractive actually aren't what be, what's best for us. And so when God warns Eve against taking the apple, he has her best interest in mind, right? And yet she was so deceived by the attractiveness and by the lies of Satan that she took the apple and she ate. And now the church at Corinth was kind of taking an apple of false teaching a different way or pathway to relationship with God rather than through the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And they were eating of that apple. And Paul's saying, don't give in to that temptation. Jesus has something better for you. 
He's got a a gospel of grace rooted in his own sacrificial love for you. Don't take a false detour into false teachings. And friends, I see this happening, you know, now in, in our day and age too. I see it on Facebook. I see it in those places of social media where people are giving in to false gospels. Maybe it's a belief that our, that our political party is their best pathway to, to unity in our nation when it's only Jesus that's going to do that. Maybe it's thinking that somehow the pursuit of wealth and comfort is going to enable us to grow because, you know, if we're at peace and we're in this place of comfort, then, you know, we're not stressed and we can grow, but, but actually it's when we're financially struggling often that we recognize our total need for Jesus. Beth and I came home from this vacation and we basically said, you know, uh, where are we coming up with this money? And we, we traveled frugally. We stayed at this retreat center that gives us a great deal for pastors and pastors' wives. Uh, we were not living high on the hog this last week. But we also recognized that we could potentially be going into debt and that the $500 for staying at that retreat center last week, we didn't exactly know where it was coming from. Well, about a year ago now, I got backed into by somebody right at the, uh, the intersection here of, of Ridge and Zion, and there's that stop sign that it's, it's kind of tough to, do, to discern where you're meant to stop. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, and sometimes, I love Robinsons. Robinsons are our brothers. They helped us out with our trees. But sometimes there's the big trucks from Robinsons that come around, and you better not have your nose out there. Well, one guy had his nose out there, and there's a truck coming around, and he ended up backing into me. And I felt bad for the guy, but he did back into me, and I I had given him room. Well, over time, working with my insurance, State Farm, things had played out, and it was kind of delayed and all this kind of stuff. So the long and the short of it is, I arrive home, I open up my mail, and there's a thing from State Farm, and I'm like, oh, good, you know, some other bill, some whatever. It was a $500 check covering my deductible for that part of the, you know, my car that had been damaged. And they were covering that part of my deductible, the exact same amount that we had spent on our vacation. God shows up and he provides if we allow him to. And when we trust him and when we're willing to commit ourselves to him. But we need to be darn sure that Satan operates as a, and masquerades as an angel of light. He wants to deter us and turn us away from Jesus and our trust in him and our reliance upon him. And Paul is basically willing to say, don't allow the, you know, Satan's tactics to, to gain fruit in your life or gain root in your life. Don't allow you know, that false gospel of ease and prosperity to take root. And Many have given into that gospel within the wider church, within the United States, that if we follow Jesus, we're, we're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, right? But it doesn't always work out that way. Rather, what Paul tells us, that he was willing to, be, to suffer for the church at Corinth because he knew that that was where the spiritual growth could often come. And his willingness to suffer for the church at Corinth was a willingness to help the church at Corinth see Jesus through him. That was why Paul was willing to be seen as a fool and to be willing to identify with them, to take his identity as a Hebrew, an Israelite, a seed of Abraham. I mean, all these good gifts and all ways that Paul could say that he was right with God in and of himself and lay those things down for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of them. 
and to develop a relationship with them through suffering and hardship and ministry. A willingness to actually lay himself down in order to lift them up. And Paul talks about that where he says basically his evangelizing of them was a desire to elevate them who are lowly. He, he wants to, to take those who are weak and foolish and, and who are susceptible to giving in to a false gospel. And he basically wants to point to the fact that just as Jesus came into this world in order to lift us up to save us, Paul was willing to sacrifice himself and to experience suffering in order to lift them up as well. One of the greatest illustrations I heard of this recently occurred when a United States swimmer Anita Alvarez sank slowly to the bottom of a pool at the World Championships in Budapest recently. You see, Alvarez had so strained herself in swimming that she had passed out and had started to sink to the bottom of the pool. Fortunately, her coach, Andrea Fuentes, knew her athlete so well that she knew exactly when Anita was under the water longer than she typically is. And so what did Andrea do? She dove down into the pool. And by this point, Anita's sunk to the bottom of the pool. It's a shallow pool. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a lap swimming pool. It's not super deep. But Andrea knew that Anita was in danger. And so her coach dove down, wrapped her up in a, you know, saving position, pushed herself off the bottom of the pool, and got Anita to, to safety. Andrea was willing to dive down, sacrifice herself for the sake of her swimmer, a coach who was so committed to their athlete that they would they noticed when they were suffering beyond what was typical and that they needed life-saving help. That's what Jesus has done for you, brothers and sisters in Christ. He dove down into this world. He suffered on the cross in his death for you to be able to lift you up to safety and salvation. And Paul wants you and wants the church at Corinth to see that Jesus Not the Jesus that's falsely presented as the way to safety and security, but the Jesus who was so in love with you that he was willing to suffer and die for you. And so Paul was willing to go through all kinds of hardships, hard work, imprisonments, floggings, threats to his life. He takes on the literary convention of boasting, but he inverts it, and he boasts instead in his folly and weakness and disappointment and defeat. Paul enumerates the various ways he has suffered for the church at Corinth to be able to show them who the real true Jesus is. And he wants you to know that Jesus. And so this leaves us as a model, a model as a church alive of suffering with and for one another. To be able to dive in and get wet and be willing to dive in and get wet when things are hard for your brother or sister in Jesus. And to be able to acknowledge when you're getting wet and when you feel like you're drowning. And I want to point that out because the church can only come alongside you and and come into your circumstance if you let us know. And every now and then somebody says, hey, I was in the hospital two days, you know, this last week, but everything's okay now. And I'm thinking, let us know. We want to be with, there and with you and for you in that time of suffering and difficulty. But we can't be unless you let us know. And that's not just for you. That's for those around you. Because when the church shows up for you, when you allow it to, your family and friends are going to notice And every now and then, when the church has gotten this right, I've gone in to visit somebody, and a nurse has said, what church are you the pastor of? 
Sierra Presbyterian Church. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of because your people keep showing up. One guy didn't have a chance to get well, sadly, because the church just kept showing up so much for them. The nurse actually said, you need to tell the church to stop. There's too many people coming. This guy's just got to get well. I said, okay, we can call off the church, but we'll keep praying for him. We're committed to him. We're not giving up on him. That's the kind of connection that we're invited into. And what this invites us to is several things that Paul models, and this is an application here. Be willing to work hard. One of the things that my dad taught me is just hard work, basic, honest, hard work. And at Father's Day recently, I had a chance to just say, I really appreciate the model of hard work that you gave me. And I work hard, and Paul worked hard, and the goodness of working hard is because that investment pays spiritual dividends. Be willing to face hardship. The way of Jesus is not easy, and if whoever invited you to follow Jesus told you it was, they lied. The way of Jesus is actually difficult. My life would be a lot easier if I was not a pastor, but it's the way God has called me to serve. Be willing to show your weakness. Don't act like you have it all together. In fact, point out the cracks and the crevices of your life and where you're weak so that other people can see how God is strong. Be willing to do everything to the glory and honor of God. Dave's going to sing a solo for us in a moment, and I always love when Dave sings for us because I feel like I've been to church just with Dave's singing. But what we usually do when he's singing and I'm preaching is we pray together ahead of time. And we ask that God would be glorified and honored in all our preaching and all our singing, and not us. And be willing to depend on God for rescue. Because whether you realize it or not, you're like Anita Fuentes. Without Jesus, we're all at the bottom of the pool and we're going to drown without his intervention. But thanks be to God that through Jesus, he dove in to rescue us. And he was willing to die on the cross for us. So my question for you in closing, as a, a church, a, a part of a church alive, as believers in Jesus, I want to commend to you that you should be willing to suffer with one another because Christ was willing to suffer with and for you. And I want to ask you, how is God calling you to suffer with and for other believers and the church as a whole right now? Maybe that's sacrificial giving. And you're going to give and you're going to tithe even when it hurts. I've been there and I want to join you there. Maybe it's visiting someone or reaching out to somebody and you don't know how they're going to respond to you. It's that relative that there's been conflict with for years and you've kind of given up, but God's calling you to call them and to reach out and reflect love and care. Maybe it's your neighbor that you've had a stupid dispute over your property line with and you're actually going to go to the edge of the property and take one step more to reach out to them and actually get to know them and reflect love for them. Maybe it's praying for the kids who will be here at Adventure Week this week, asking God to move in hearts and lives. It could be giving of your testimony and story, even when you don't know how it's going to be received. It could be giving of your possessions when you don't know where God's provision is going to come from. Or maybe it's being willing to go into hard places. Maybe willing to make a hospital visit or to someone who you've had a conflict with, but God's calling you to stretch out and to reach out Because suffering with and for one another is actually the pathway of Jesus and the way for us to know that Jesus is alive and well and he is present among us. Amen. Amen.